right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another day just to be alive, courtesy of your grace. We thank you for the air we breathe, for whatever health we do have, for our heart beating, for the food we eat. We know our very life and sustenance is from you, and we are grateful and thankful for life itself. Father, most of all, we're thankful for your Son, Jesus Christ, who even though he was perfect in heaven with you, was willing to leave heaven and become a man, all for the purpose of suffering and dying on our behalf. Father, help us never be familiar with this truth that you decided to leave heaven, that you were willing to give up your only son from heaven so that you could save us, unworthy sinners that we are. We thank you for your grace and your mercy and your gentleness towards us. We ask, Father, that you bless this message that you guide us and teach us by your Spirit. And it's in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Once again, the introduction of the God-man, John 1, 1 through 18. First, I want to thank Pastor Collins for the opportunity and the privilege of standing behind his pulpit. Um, as we know, it's increasingly rare to find a man who has a heart for God and his people. And we should all be thankful to the Lord for his gift that we get to share in. And uh, I'm really appreciative to, uh, you know, step in for him when needed. I hope you all also had a wonderful time of Thanksgiving these last few days, um, just sitting back, at least mentally, hopefully, and being appreciative of what we do have. And that's something that's been on my heart lately is um, thanking God for what we do have. Whatever it is, whatever area of life you want to talk about, uh, we all have certain blessings that we're not due or deserving of. So as we begin this mini-series, uh, I'd like to first share a scripture with you related to Thanksgiving and to our recent series on what is good. Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 107, verse 1. Psalm 107, verse 1. It's fun to watch God bring things together. I'm sure you'll agree. And here's a verse that came up to me a couple days ago that um, really was very poignant, maybe for me at that time in my own walk, uh, but also related to our recent series on what is good. Psalm 107.1 Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, and His loving kindness is everlasting. Pretty simple isn't it? Why should we give thanks to the Lord? Because He's good. And His loving kindness is everlasting, to top it off. It sounds like a verse we saw in Micah on Tuesday, if you remember. And I was reading something online, and the point was made about giving thanks, and how it's not about how we feel, 
um, or if things are going smoothly or difficult in our lives right now, it's not about what giving thanks is about. We should give thanks to the Lord for the simple reason that He's good. Like, so that cuts through all the details of life, doesn't it? It really even has nothing to do with your circumstances and, you know, how many blessings you can count. Just thank God He's good. Imagine if He wasn't a good God. Right? I mean, it's not like we have a say in the matter. Imagine if He was a wrathful God without mercy. But that's not who He is. He's good. So good, He literally gave up His own Son. So again, verse 1, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Let that scripture on God's goodness motivate you to be thankful each and every day, which if you've been in this ministry for any time at all, you know that's one of our callings in this ministry is to give thanks every day, rejoice every day. We have so much to be thankful for, but even if you can't think of what to be thankful for, be thankful for the fact that he is good. The simple things are the most powerful. And there we see the simplest and best reason for giving thanks. Amen? All right. So on to our mini-series. On the board again, the introduction of the God-man, focusing on John 1, 1 through 18. And this passage is not just the introduction of the Gospel of John, but it could be considered the introduction of the person of Jesus Christ in all his glory. Don't turn there yet. Wait a minute. I'm going to spoil it. Just, I want you to consider a few things before we read this. It's the introduction of the very person of Jesus Christ in all his glory. It could be considered the introduction. Not that the Old Testament doesn't provide us with such good news on salvation from the Lord God, but that the revelation or the revealing of the Lord God in our very presence and his way to salvation, which is being born of God, as we'll see, these things are dynamically introduced, boldly introduced in this passage, unlike any other. In addition, John 1, 1 through 18 is considered a prologue into the entire Gospel of John. It brings up concepts that are further expanded later on in the Gospel of John. It brings up some very bold claims that are further explained in the rest of the Gospel. But it's all packed into these first 18 verses as we'll see. This introduction bursts onto the scene for us with claims about who the Lord is and even how to be saved by God's way and not by man's way. So with no coincidence, I believe the Holy Spirit put this on my heart because it includes two major themes that we've already been noting over the last couple months, namely the power of the Word of God and being born again by the Spirit of God. You'll remember we studied those, you know, in the last few weeks even. And these are jam-packed into this introduction of Jesus Christ. So now let's turn to John 1, verse 1. John 1, verse 1. And let's see what the Spirit wants to emphasize in our souls this week. And we could probably spend months on this one passage. 
but we want to receive what the Spirit has for us today, which should be our attitude anytime we read the Bible. Are we ever going to get it all? In other words, why don't we stop trying to get it all and, and condemning ourselves when we don't understand something we read? Why don't we just cut that out? We're never going to get it all. Every time we open our Bible, we should be like, okay, what are you going to show me today? What's the thing? Maybe it was one thing. What do you want to show me today? And so it is with this passage. As we study this out, we could spend probably years on John chapter 1. But what does the Spirit have for us today? What's He want us to know today? That's all we really want. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. Oh, I'm sorry, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it or overcome it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. And this is talking about John the Baptist, not the apostle. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about Him and cried out, saying, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained or declared him. So as I was studying this and contemplating this passage even, I was like, where do I start? There's so much in here. It's such a rich and powerful passage. And then the Spirit said to me, stop it. And he told me to start in the beginning. What a good idea. Especially because the first three words are in the beginning. So look back to John 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right there holds a lifetime of teaching. I mean, seriously, what does that mean right there? Do we have any idea what that means? Even as we study it, maybe for, for months or years on this one passage, do we fully understand what this means? 
Imagine God's perspective on this passage. What did God mean by this? It blows your mind what he's really getting at. But for now, again, let's see what the Spirit wants to say to us and wants us to get out of it today. From God's perspective, it's an endless meaning. Again, in the beginning was the word. Uh, what, is it, what does that even mean, in the beginning? Does God even have a beginning? This may be put in human terms for us so that we have a frame of reference to at least understand that God was around in the beginning before all of us and even before planet Earth and the heavens were created. Remember on the board in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What does that mean? Well, it gives us a clue, I guess, but we can't fathom it. So apparently, there was what we might understand as a beginning where God existed even before the heavens and the earth were created. And look again what we see in John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. So the Word was there too. When in Genesis 1, 1, God created the heavens and the earth. The Word was there too, apparently according to John 1, verse 1. So we can conclude the Word is also eternal, just as God himself is eternal. This takes big-picture thinking, right? Like, like, you know, this will blow, blow your mind, and it should blow your mind, but it takes us to step back and just try to look at the big picture, try to see things as God sees things. And his Spirit is right with us every step of the way as we try to do this thing, as he's trying to show us something this morning. So then John, inspired by the Spirit of God, reveals more about the Word. Again, look at John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So here we have a pretty clear statement, a plain statement, that the Word and God are one and the same. It's hard to read anything but that, in other words. What does it say at the end of verse 1? The Word was God. It doesn't say the Word was like God. It doesn't even say the Word were the thoughts of God. It says the Word was God. So now concentrate and, and try to follow this train of thought with me. We have the Word was God. We also know that God is spirit, according to John 4, 24. Jesus said God is spirit. So God's true substance is not in some solid, limited form, but he is spirit, right? And spirit consists of thought, doesn't it? His thoughts, the very thinking of God, which is called his word. So in other words, on the board, God's thinking, God's word was always with God and was God. That's what makes up God. For example, his spirit. 
Compare John 1.1 1, 1 to John 4.24. Again, God's thinking, God's word was always with God and was God. And that's what makes up God, his spirit. If that seems confusing, let me clarify a little bit. Think of your human soul. You all have a soul, right? <laughs> I hope you all believe that. You all have a soul. According to the word of God, we have a soul that God gave us. What makes up the real you? Who are you? Who's the real you? Is it your body or your appearance or even how you feel? Some of you are like, thank God. That's not the real me, right? That's a part of you. But if you were paralyzed in a bed right now, and I apologize to anyone that, you know, this uh, is graphic or whatever, or you're going through something. But if you were paralyzed in a bed right now and you couldn't use your body, does that change who you are in your soul? Do you change one iota? Other than the fact of going through testing and, you know, that kind of thing? Is your soul different now? Is your personality different now? Or do you still exist in who you are? And uh, that's not changed, regardless of the status of your body. By the way, uh, I'm going to ask you all to pray for a 97-year-old man named Vito, who we met yesterday at the mall. 97. This guy looked like he was 72. It was amazing. And uh, we, we met with him yesterday, and we talked to him a little bit. And he was wondering, do I even have a soul? You know, which, you know, kind of shocks you, right? Like, what about your soul? Where's your soul going when you die? I don't know. I don't even know if I have a soul. Well, who, who's talking to me right now? Just your body? Where did your personality come from? And why is it different from every other person on the face of the earth? So anyway, keep uh, Vito in your prayers as uh, he's uh, doubting. But what makes up the real you is the question. Think about your, your soul that God gave you. If you couldn't use your body, you're still the same person with the same heart, aren't you? It's your soul and your spirit that makes up the real you. And we're all so wonderfully different. Remember that verse David said, God, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. We're all so wonderfully different. Sometimes we want to kill each other, but that's okay. I mean, because we're different. But we're wonderfully different. Like God, like, invents these... <laughs> How does God do it, right? He invents a way to make every soul unique and different. But anyway, I digress a little bit. Your soul and your spirit is what makes up the real you, the real, the real person. And that includes what you think. That mainly includes what you think. You're thinking. That's, that's you. Right? And remember, God made man in his image. God made man in his image in Genesis 1. That's another crazy thing to contemplate. What does that mean? But part of it is, do you think it's more about our bodies being made in God's image or our soul and spirit being made in God's image? Because God is spirit, isn't he? In John 4, 24. He's not limited to a body. 
So what do you think? Is it more our bodies or our souls that are made in his image? Again, the point on the board. God's thinking, God's word was always with God and was God. That's what makes up God, i.e. his spirit. God is his spirit. His spirit is how he thinks or what he thinks with. His thinking is his spirit, you see. And again, we're all in the same boat because we're created in God's image. So not only was the word around in the beginning. Now think about it following our logic. Doesn't the word have to be around in the beginning if the word is God's that very thinking and God was around in the beginning? If the word was around in the beginning and not only was the word with God, but the word also was God. Again, look at your Bible in John 1.1. 1, 1. The Word was God. There's no room for misinterpretation here. Does it, it doesn't get any more plainly stated than this. There's no room for making the Word anything less than God Himself. That's why we're supposed to believe in the power of the Word. As our recent studies have come about, the Word's omnipotent because God's omnipotent, because they're the same person. And that's why when we look at the Word, we should look at the Word in that way with an awe that right here is the omnipotent and omniscient mind of God written down for our benefit. It's perspective that saves us, really. So not only was the Word God, but in the Greek on the board, the Greek word order for John 1, 1, part C, it actually says, and God was the Word. God was the Word. Also important to note, it doesn't say the Word was a God, as the Jehovah's Witnesses teach. It says the Word was God, theos in the Greek. And there's no article for the word a before it. It's not in the Greek. But the Jehovah's Witnesses twist the Scriptures and it's these kind of lies that make them conclude that Jesus is not the God-man. That he's lesser. He's a God. He's not the God. But John clearly reveals throughout his entire gospel that Jesus is the God-man. The word order in the Greek makes it even clearer than our English Bible. It says God, Theos, was the word. So now at this point, back to our, our train of thinking about the Word and God's thinking. Remember in the book of Proverbs, on the board, it says a man, or as a man thinks, so he is. Proverbs 23, 7, part A. For as he thinks within himself, so is he. In other words, again, this is who you really are, your soul how you think, a man's thinking in his soul makes up or determines who he really is as a man or a woman. You know what I mean? That's the real you. And we just learned about how a good man keeps his what? We just studied this last week, right? A good man keeps his word. Is that a coincidence? Where does your word come from? 
it has to first formulate in your thought, doesn't it? So this is who we really are. As a man thinks within himself, so he is. And so it is with God in whose image we were created. You want to know God? Get to know how he thinks and what's important to him. And get to know his spirit. Ask for more of the filling of his spirit. Get to know his spirit, which is his very thinking, right? And that's what makes God who he is, just like what makes us who we are. And again, we're created in his image. So God has given us his word, which is his very thinking written down for our benefit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, it calls the word the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ. So we have the very thinking of Christ, who is God, who is the word, as we'll see. On the board in John 1.1, the dramatic point is that they are one and the same. The Word was God, or better yet, God was the Word. What a way for John to begin his gospel. What an introduction, like like no holds barred, right? I'm not going to lean into this or ease into this. God was the Word. What are you going to do with that? Think about it, pray about it, ponder on that. God was the Word. And the Word is also called He in verse 2. So here we get a little more complex. Go to John 1, 1 again. Let's read verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, the Word in context. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So the word is called he. And by this person, the word, all things came into being. In verse 3. When God simply spoke his word in Genesis 1. Remember Genesis 1? He just spoke his word and everything was created. For example, the Lord said, let there be light. And there was light. His word performed the action. The power was in his word. So who is he in John 1 verse 2? He, the word, is it simply God? Or is it more? Well, we have a further introduction, and many of you know the answer, but don't spoil it for everybody else. You might know the answer. But keep this in context. What have we read so far? Three verses. And what does it say? He, the Word, created everything. Whoever the Word is. We know He was with God. We know He was God. That's all we know so far. On the board, the Word is He. We have a special revelation by John of the incarnation of the Word, namely God becoming flesh. 
revealing himself and his word in an entirely different way than in the Old Testament. John 1.14 gives us the answer to the, to the riddle, so to speak. Turn to John 1.14. Are you already there? But again, on the board, we have a special revelation by John of the incarnation of the word. Namely, God becoming flesh, revealing himself, his word, in an entirely different way than in the Old Testament. John 1.14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as, the, as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now this is a foolish thought to man, that God himself would take the form of flesh. That's absurd to man. But we see the Spirit makes this crystal clear, that this is what happened. Again, in John 1.1, 1, 1, the Word was God. And in John 1.14, the Word became flesh. There's only one conclusion you can draw. And only arrogant, rationalizing man who likes to twist the ways of God to fit their own preconception. Only this arrogant man will try to challenge or change the plain statement of this truth about the word God becoming flesh. Why would you want to change it? Ask yourself that question. Why does a man want to twist it when it is so plainly stated? And when someone says to me, I don't know about you, but if someone looks at this verse and says, oh, no, that's not really what it means. It means this. I, I get upset in my spirit. I'm like, you're basically saying it doesn't say what it says. It's so plainly stated, right? How do you disagree with the word was God? How do you disagree then that the word became flesh and that's talking about God? Arrogant man not wanting to surrender to God maybe? Wanting to, wanting to keep control? His own, his own notions of God, you know, still be able to grasp them? But it comes down to arrogance try to change the plain statement of the word. But that's man. So on the board, be on the alert, believers. Only arrogant man, motivated by a different spirit, as in 2 Corinthians 11.4, will try to discredit Jesus Christ from being who he really is. As Holy Scripture tells us, God himself has come to visit his people. couldn't be more clear through the whole gospel of John. But be on the alert because there are different spirits out there. There are demons infiltrating people's hearts because people let them and want to believe a lie. So they infiltrate people's hearts and get them convinced that there's no way God became a man. There's no way that couldn't happen. It just couldn't, as if that's an explanation. But that's what some people will say. Why are they so convinced in their hearts? They've allowed to be influenced by demons. They, they, they don't want to believe the truth or submit to God. So here you go. What's my only option? To twist the truth. But the Bible says God himself has come to visit his people. Luke seven sixteen is where we see one example of that. So turn in your Bibles to Luke 7, verse 11. 
Luke 7, verse 11. Again, only arrogant man, motivated by a different spirit, will try to discredit Jesus Christ from being who he really is. God himself has visited his people. Luke 7, 11. Soon afterwards, he, Jesus, went to a city called Nain, and his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. Now, as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a sizable crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, notice he's called the Lord. That's another whole discussion, but when the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, do not weep. And he came up and touched the coffin and the bearers came to a halt. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Fear gripped them all and they began glorifying God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. I wonder if these people understood what they actually just said right there. They were overwhelmed, obviously, and they said God has visited his people, and God the Holy Spirit allowed that to be recorded in Holy Scripture. God has visited his people. We also have Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, plainly stating that God has visited them, which, by the way, is right in line with the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, which we'll get to. But turn to Luke 1, verse 67. Luke 1, 67. Again, you have to be very arrogant to deny that the Bible teaches that God became man and that God has visited his people. Luke 1, 67. And his father, talking about uh, John the Baptist's father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. Is it any clearer than that? Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us. I wonder if Zacharias fully understood what he was saying at the time. But the Holy Spirit encouraged him to say it. And who did Zacharias prophesy that his son John would go before? Who was John the Baptist going to go before? A prophet? Look at Luke 176. And you, child, and again, this is still Zacharias talking about his son, John the Baptist. You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways. This compares with, on the board, Isaiah 40, verse 3. Zacharias is, is recalling a fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah 40, verse 3, on the board. A voice is calling. Clear the way for who? The Lord. 
in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for who? Our God. Not a representative of our God. It's the Lord and it's God. Who is this Lord and God Isaiah speaks of here? In the Hebrew, it's the one and only God. It's, it's Yahweh for the word Lord and it's Elohim for the word God. And as we know, God had many names in the Old Testament. But these are names for God Almighty, Jehovah. Just two of the names. So it can't be misconstrued what is being said here. Even if you look at Luke 176, right? Look again at your Bibles in Luke 176. For you, child, will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways. Well, does that really mean he's going to go before the Lord, or is it the Lord's representative maybe? No, 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 no. Go back to Isaiah 40, verse 3 on the board. It's to clear the way for the Lord, Yahweh, for God, Elohim, himself. So Jehovah's Witnesses, who is John the Baptist assigned to make a way for? If you honestly compare Scripture with Scripture. According to Isaiah, it was for Jehovah himself. God in the flesh is coming. And as Zechariah said, God has visited his people. So go back to John 1, verse 14. What a wonderful God we have. I mean, think about it. He didn't just send a representative. He sent himself to do what he did on the cross. It's not like he tried to get out of it or tried to find a way where he wouldn't have to make his own sacrifice of himself. But he found a way out of his tremendous love for us. John 1.14 And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So what an introduction we have for Jesus Christ, the Lord God revealed in the flesh. And you've got to understand, too, this is so different what John's writing about in John chapter 1. It's an entirely different gospel from the other three gospels, which are called the synoptic gospels because they're very similar to each other. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's entirely different. A man named Clement of Alexandria tells us in history books that some of John's friends approached him at Ephesus in his old age to write a gospel. And inspired by the Holy Spirit, John introduced to us who Jesus Christ really was. And as we just talked about, he didn't hold back. He's like, he is the word. And the word is God. The word was God. His deity is proclaimed with great clarity by John. Jesus was the Lord God in all his glory, appearing to man, full of grace and truth in the confines of human flesh. Hard for us to understand, to grasp what he did. But he's God, and the word tells us very clearly what he did. John goes on to tell us in verse 3, we already read, all things were created by him, the Word, who is Jesus Christ. Now we know in verse 14. And unfortunately, 
This will even surprise a lot of so-called Christians who don't read their Bibles. If you tell them Jesus Christ is the Word or Jesus Christ created everything, they're like, what? Really, have you ever seen this, experienced this? It's sad. It's kind of crazy. As we've been doing surveys in the malls lately to see what people think and believe, you know one of the things that hit me yesterday? A lot of people, when you ask them, what's your religion or your faith? They say Christian. The next question is, you know, if you die tonight, where are you going and why? You know, a lot of these so-called Christians say, I don't know. Or I hope there's a God. Or I don't really believe in Christ. Like, I don't know who he is. Or they, what, what do they call themselves? So what I'm saying, uh, you know, from the spirit here, Red alert. Just because someone says they're a Christian, don't be like, oh, great, brother. You know what I mean? Don't stop there. Because guess what? They might believe nothing. That 97-year-old man, Vito, that we met yesterday, sweet gentleman. What religion are you, Christian? Where are you going when you die? I don't know. I don't even know if I have a soul. Ugh, right? But don't stop there when someone tells you they're Christian. It's just a label. It's just something that gives them some kind of an identity. I grew up that way, so I guess that's what I am. But how horrible if it doesn't mean anything to them, right? So what's our job? How about realizing we might have to witness to some people that call themselves Christians? I mean, be on the alert, everybody. Just because someone even reads their Bible doesn't mean they're a believer. Because as we studied, believing means to surrender to Jesus Christ as your God and Savior, personally. Not just a guy that you hope is true, or a prophet, as the Jehovah's Witnesses will say, or a little God. You have to surrender to Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. And Lord means God. It means Jehovah in the flesh. But that's between each person and God. No one can do it for them. But we can be a good messenger, can't we? Can't we accurately at least tell the truth in love? Of course we can. So anyway, don't take for granted that someone's a believer just because they use that word. Tell me that hasn't been coming from the pulpit for the last few years. So John boldly proclaims Christ's deity in the whole Gospel of John. If you want to tell someone to read a book or someone that's not sure if, who Jesus really is, just say, please, just go read the Gospel of John. Come to your own conclusion. Even read the first chapter. Can you read one chapter for me? It's two pages. You come to your own conclusion. I'm not going to try to convince you. It's plainly stated. So John bursts Jesus Christ onto the scene like he should be burst onto the scene. And also, Scripture reveals that all three members of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, have a part in all creation. More proof that uh, Jesus is God. So let's just take a quick look at this for your own edification. Uh, Turn back to Genesis 1, verse 1 and 2. You know, I was thinking this might be one of those primary colors 
primary doctrines that we can't be split on, we have to unify around. One of them is that Jesus is God in the flesh. He's not a simile. You know, he's not just a uh, image of God. He's not just a prophet. This is one of those things that can't be compromised, and this is one of those things that we unite around and uh, makes us one. Genesis 1, 1 and 2. So again, we're talking about how all three members of the Godhead are, are involved in creation itself. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earths. So we know that, right? That's the obvious one. God created the heavens and the earths. How could Jesus create the heavens and the earths if God created the heavens and the earths? Well, let's see. Verse 2, the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. So there we see the Spirit was also involved in creation. Now turn to the New Testament, Colossians 1, verse 16. So we have God, who we would call the Father, involved in creating the heavens and the earth. We also have the Spirit of God involved in creation. Now look at Colossians 1, 16. For by him, in context, this is talking about Jesus Christ. By him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Doesn't get any more plainly stated than that, does it? And turn back to John 1, verse 3. What do we know now about John 1, verse 3? At first, we weren't sure because it says the Word created these things. But from verse 14, we know who the Word is, Jesus Christ. John 1, 3 says, All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In other words, apart from Jesus Christ, nothing was created. He's involved in every single part of any creation. More evidence that he's God. So the Apostle John wasn't shy about his introduction of Jesus Christ at all. Just as the light of the sun boldly shines on us every morning, so John introduced the bright morning star. Jesus Christ, in all his glory. Bam, on the scene, just like the sun in the morning. Hit you right in the head. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He didn't start with his childhood like Luke did, right? He didn't start with his miracles, which obviously are wonderful. He said, do you realize who we're talking about here? Sorry, a little Italian came out on me. Do you realize who we're talking about here? It's the God-man. Let me introduce you to the God-man. Unbelievable. And that brings us to the light in John 1, verse 4. Look at verses 4 and 5. In Him, we know that's Jesus Christ now, the Word, in Him was life. And the life was the light of men. 
The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it, or better translated, overcome it. The darkness did not overcome the light. Jesus Christ is now the bright morning star. And I want you to think about how God gave us the sun, S-U-N, as a visual aid which God appointed to rise every morning and brightly shine on us. I want you to think about the sun as a visual aid of Jesus Christ, the bright morning star. And let's turn to a passage that brings some of this together for us about the Lord's glory, uh, which we see in John's introduction, that he's both the light and the word, all right, among other titles. But go to um, First Peter, uh, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16. 2 Peter 1.16. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales, Peter writes, when we were made, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. By the way, just notice real quick, in verse 16, the Lord Jesus Christ, Peter calls his majesty, right? In verse 17, God the Father is called majestic glory. Same attribute, same description. And the majestic glory said, This is my beloved Son with, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. This is Peter talking about the transfiguration of Jesus Christ that he witnessed personally in Matthew chapter 17. So in verse 19, we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in the darkness. Notice Peter is calling the word the lamp or the light, as in John chapter 1. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Who's the morning star? Jesus Christ himself, the God-man. He's the morning star, the Spirit of God even. He's the morning star that arises in our hearts. It's his spirit and his word, of which he is both, that arises in our hearts. Turn to Revelation twenty-two sixteen. Hope you see the oneness of God. It is a wonder for sure. <laughs> no pun intended. But like really, the Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. 
the Word was God. The Word became flesh. Um, these things are all, He's one. They're interchangeable. He's one. But in Revelation 26, 2.16, He's also called the morning star. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The Lord took this title away from Satan after his fall and took this title upon himself, even becoming a man to show his light to the world for all to see and be saved by. Go again back to John 1, verse 4. John 1, verse 4. So Jesus is called the light. He's also called the bright morning star. And in verse 4, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the dark, darkness did not overcome it. So Jesus Christ revealed true life to mankind. He literally came and showed people what true life looks like. And hopefully that makes you think of love as well, which we'll get to. But Jesus Christ came to reveal life to man, and that life, it says, was the light of men. Turn in your Bibles to Romans uh, 8, verse 1. I just want to share a verse with you that I saw this morning in my reading. And um, it coincides perfectly with this explanation, part, part of an explanation of this life that Jesus was. Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Notice we have a new law we're under as believers. The law of the spirit of life. And where is life found? In Christ Jesus. Back to John 1.4. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. Jesus Christ revealed true life to man. The eternal love of God revealed in his light. Also the light of truth. As an analogy in verse 5, light conquers the darkness. Light overcomes the darkness. Just like love conquers hate and truth conquers lies. On the board, his life was the light. God's truth, God's word became flesh and shined into the darkness. His name was Jesus and he revealed the very love of God to mankind. As we know, God is love. Compare John 1, 4 with 1 John 4, 8, and 16. God is love. Again, God's truth, God's word, became flesh 
and shined into the darkness. His name was Jesus, and he revealed the very love of God to mankind. That was the life, in other words. What does true life look like? Perfect love. And we had it to behold in the flesh. His life, his light, was God's love. His perfect love would become revealed in a perfect man who was not just a man. He was the God-man. And he was the light of God to enlighten every man, it says in verse 9. Even about the unending love of God. It was made known to man. I love you. How much? This much. I entered into flesh so you could see me. So you could see true life and where to find it. What an analogy we have to the bright morning star. I never thought about it before like this because I always saw this title, the bright morning star. And I thought about a star in the sky, so to speak, like the one over Jerusalem at the birth of the Lord. The bright morning star. But what is the bright morning star? The sun, as we know now, is a star, right? The sun, S-U-N, is a star. And it's bright, <laughs> to say the least, every morning for us. So Jesus Christ being called the bright morning star is not just a star. It's the flood, floodlight of who God is. His light, His warmth, His truth, and His love. Everything that comes with it. And the sun, S-U-N, is a perfect analogy to the Lord's mighty power and clarity. Do you think it's a coincidence that God gave us the sun every morning? One that we can't look at straight on? That's how powerful it is? course not. And I wonder if the prophet Hosea realized what he was saying in Hosea 6.3 on the board in the NIV when he wrote, let us acknowledge the Lord, let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. And remember, Jesus' face shone as the sun. Go to Matthew 17, verse 1, as we begin to close. Matthew 17, 1. The Bible says Jesus' face shone like the sun. Again, these titles and these uh, descriptions of the Lord, they're all interchangeable. They're all one. Matthew 17, 1. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter. We just read Peter, what Peter said, right, about this in his book. Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a mountain, on a high mountain, by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. Notice two of the three people that witnessed this with their own eyes. Peter, who we just read about in Second uh, Peter 1, I think it was, right? Who describes the Lord, the bright morning star. 
And who's the other, the other one that we're reading about? Reading from? John. There's the Apostle John. Who witnessed this. His face shining like the sun. And John writes, his life was the light of men. On the board in Revelation 1.14 in the NIV, his, Jesus' head and hair, were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. Sounds like the sun to me. Doesn't get any more blazing than the sun. Think of how the brightness of the sun, which again, we can't even look straight into, it completely clears away the darkness of the night. Completely, right? It doesn't leave any behind. It doesn't miss any spots of darkness from the night. When it comes up, it comes up, and everything is revealed. It's not like a candle in a dark room. It's like a supernatural floodlight that can't be stopped. And there you have the God-man. The very uh, revealing of God's life in a human body for us all to see. Once again, it all ties so intimately and seamlessly together. And as Pastor's recent blog stated, again, there are no coincidences. The Spirit's working all these things together for our edification. Nutrition and Ingredients Labels blog. First, he quoted John 6, 33 through 35. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. What does he give? What does Jesus give? Life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. And then pastor wrote, uh, Jesus essentially stated that we have been given the perfect source of sustenance, him, himself. And since he is the word, just read the label in John 1.14, you know that when you ingest him, you are dining on the very bread of life. We shouldn't even separate the word from him in our minds. This is the very mind of Christ. And that's who we eat upon. We eat upon his soul, so to speak, his spirit, his thinking. And that's how we partake in him. And that's how we receive real life, true life, the life of God. When's the last time you thought of Jesus and the Bible as one and the same? In your own soul, in your own heart. When's the last time you thought of Jesus and the Bible as one and the same? Jesus is the bread of life. He is the word. And his life was the light of men. And we must eat of him. His person, his very person, his bread, to have true life and energy and sustenance. And we find him in the word. He is the word. And that's where we eat. That's where we dine on him, his person, his very person. This is very personal. It's not like a substitute or a representative even. It's not. It's him. It's very 
personal and intimate. And unless our perspective is like that, we don't give God all the glory for who he is. We don't give Christ all the glory for who he is. And we won't also see the life in who he is, his person. So back to uh, the light in John 1 as we close. Go back to John 1 verse 4. These descriptions are all intimately tied to one another, very intimately, as in like oneness. John 1, 4 through 9. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John, John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify about the light, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. And just like every man can see the sun rise in the morning, so every man can see the Lord through Jesus Christ. Remember, God is impartial. He's not biased. He doesn't play favorites. He treats all men the same, regardless of nationality, race, color, gender. His light, in other words, shines upon all men. He's not prejudiced or discriminating against Jews or Gentiles, against slaves or free, against rich or poor. His light, this verse says, shines upon all men, enlightens every man. That is the fairness and the love of God. This is the light of his unconditional love, isn't it? A thing that is foreign to man. But now it's known through the person of Jesus Christ, the God-man. He revealed himself in full glory. So in God's faithfulness and impartiality, Unbelievers also see the light, just like no man is hidden from the sun in his days on earth. Just like no man can get away from the sun and escape the sun, no man can escape the light of Jesus Christ. They will suppress him in Romans 1. Be like, I don't really want to hear it. You know, I'm going to stick with my own theory and twist the scripture so I don't have to submit to God. It doesn't change the fact that they see the light because God enlightens every man. So that's how clearly and boldly God has revealed himself to all mankind, even through creation, as we've been studying, God's general revelation. Jesus Christ is special revelation, right? In the word, he is the word. And he became the light of men in the flesh. And then we have general revelation from creation. God has boldly declared himself for all mankind to see. That's how great his grace is. Despite the fact that God knows the majority of men are going to remain in their stubbornness and have hard hearts towards him. His grace still shines on every man. It's amazing when you think about it. I mean, if it were us... (laughs) 
you were God, I don't know about you, but I'd have my light shine only on those that would believe. I'd be like, you're actually going to deny I exist? You're going to deny I created you? You don't get any of my light. <laughs> right? Like little kids that we are. God's not like that. God is love. And he's like, I'm going to shine my grace on every man so there's no excuse. I'm going to show them, even at the judgment seat, the grace that I shown on them. And every man's going to know it. Every man does know it in their heart. At least at some point in their life. And through the true light shining into the darkness of this world, every man's sin has been revealed. We'll close with this point on the board from William MacDonald on John 1.9. By his coming into the world as the perfect man, he has shown how imperfect other men are. When a room is in darkness, you do not see the dust on the furniture. But when the light goes on, the room is seen as it actually is. Remember Ephesians 5, that verse that Pastor loves, seeing it all as truth? Jesus Christ, the light, has revealed, and this is why a lot of men suppress him. Because they don't want to reveal their deeds of darkness. They don't want them exposed, as Ephesians 5 says. So they kind of ignore him. I don't know how you ignore the sun. I don't know how you say the sun doesn't exist. That's what it's like, saying God doesn't exist. But it is what it is, and God did all he could to save mankind. He came into the world as a perfect man, and it revealed how imperfect other men are. And it revealed their sin. The spotlight of the Lord in his goodness reveals the sinfulness and helplessness of mankind who is trapped in darkness. Or sin, But that's the grace of God. People don't want to see it that way, but that's the grace of God. Only by turning to the light, the only one who is good, God himself, only by turning to the light can man be rescued from his darkness. Amen? We'll pick it up there on uh, Tuesday evening. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your marvelous word and for a new perspective on the word. Help us look at the word like you look at the word, as Jesus Christ himself, the light of the world, the life for all men. Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy toward us in teaching us these wonderful things by your Holy Spirit. We ask that you make these things come alive in our own souls and give us more faith to believe and to spread this good news of who Jesus Christ really is, especially during this Christmas season. As people celebrate something they don't know, help us reveal who Jesus Christ really is, the God-man, the light of the world. Father, we ask that you bless us all as we go and help us bring these truths out with great courage and faith to a lost and dying world that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Christ's precious name, and it's by the power of your spirit we pray. Amen. Thank you.